But this Sunday, we're going to celebrate and we're going to look at Palm Sunday. And we're really going to look at this and the topic of Palm Sunday from a couple of standpoints. One is theological. We're going to, we're going to look into what it means to us from a, from a Christian standpoint, but we're also going to look at the history and learn exactly what is Palm Sunday? Why do we celebrate it? Why did it happen? Why is it a story that we read about in the Gospels? Why is it important to Easter? So we're going to be diving into Palm Sunday. It was only a short time before Passover in this particular year that a miracle occurred at the hand of Jesus that kicked off all of the events that led to Palm Sunday and eventually led to the crucifixion of our Lord. It was a miracle that we read about and many of you are familiar with. It's the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. See, Jesus was friends with Lazarus, and Jesus was away, and, and he, was, he was teaching in another part of the country, of the area at the time, and he got word that Lazarus uh, was sick. And the word said, Jesus, come. And Jesus didn't leave right away. It took a couple of days before he took his disciples and he started leading towards the home that Lazarus was at. Lazarus died during that time. And Jesus comes, and there's Mary and Martha. And, of course, there's people from the town that have come to mourn with this family. Now, the town that they lived in was not far from Jerusalem, a couple of miles at the most. And so you have people from the city of Jerusalem that have gone to the home of Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha to mourn. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus does something amazing at this moment. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now I want you to imagine this, if you were there at that time. You have gone to mourn with some family, some friends that you know, and Jesus shows up and actually raises a man who you have seen his body be put into a tomb, have been put into the grave. Now, in your entire life, you have never seen anyone come back from the dead. It's never happened. As a matter of fact, you and I, in our present day, I would say that none of us have ever seen anyone who was dead. We have, we've been to funerals, and we have seen people in a casket, and the lid comes down, and, and they, they go into the ground, and then we drive away. We have never seen anyone come back from the grave. Jesus shows up, and he calls, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus walks in his grave clothes, out of this grave. Now, not only have Mary and Martha seen this, but all the people who had come to mourn with them have seen this. It's in the city of Bethany, and, and I mentioned a minute ago that, that Bethany is not far from the city of Jerusalem, a couple of miles 
or so. And here's where this all ties together, okay? Is that Passover, this annual celebration that is about to happen, it's about to start in Jerusalem, it's, which is only a couple of miles away, there's already people that are showing up, that are starting to come to Jerusalem for the Passover event. Now, Passover is a massive annual event that happens in Jerusalem. Most Jews, if you're in the area, you're required to go. Men over 18, they're required to go. And, and so there's so many people. It's estimated that up to 3 million people would come to Jerusalem for Passover. I want to put that in perspective for you. For those of you who are in Southern California in the Inland Empire, the Inland Empire has about 4 million people who live here. So roughly a few less, a million less than the entire Inland Empire would be coming to the city of Jerusalem for the Passover. Some would come early, a few days early. And we know that this miracle happened early, a little bit before Passover. But many people who were there in Bethany would have seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Now they can actually touch somebody who they knew had died, who they had seen his corpse, they had seen his body. There is living proof of the miracles of Jesus right now. That is going to lead us to our first scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to open up to John, the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 11 this morning. And we're going to be moving, I'm going to ask you to keep your finger there, because we're going to be moving to Matthew a couple of times through our message this morning. But we're going to start in John chapter 11, verse number 45. John writes this, he says, Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some went to the Pharisees and told them that Je what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man, man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. We're going to look at a couple of pieces of this scripture and dive into it and, and, and see what it really means. There's... We, we hear that the Pharisees brought the, the, the high council together. What does that mean? Let's look into this for a moment, okay? So Pharisees were a group of religious leaders. Now we're going to look at another group called the Sadducees in just a minute, but let me tell you about the Pharisees. Pharisees would be religious leaders, and they stuck strictly to the law of Moses, We've read other places in the New Testament where they would, would do everything they could to live up to the law, what they called the law, what Moses told them to, and then the other rules that they had added to church tradition. And the Pharisees had a place in a group of leaders, this council that's referred to as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a group of 71 political and religious leaders that there are some Pharisees in the group. There are also a group of what we call Sadducees in the group. Now, the Sadducees 
are also a group of leaders, but they are a group that is that that has a political tie. They're a group that has a strong tie on power. There's a difference in these two groups. The Pharisees, as we mentioned a minute ago, they care about deep adherence to the law, to the religious law. The Sadducees, however, they also care, but they care about their power and keeping power. They care about this group of 71 in this council being the power structure of the Jews. So here's where there's another layer that happens. And let's dive into this. See, in this territory, the Jews did not have control over their own land. This is Roman territory. And the Sanhedrin, this group of 71, was actually, let, let's say they were the mediators between the Romans who ran the state, who, who were in control, you paid your taxes to Rome, and the people and the Jews. So Rome would allow the Jews to form their own kind of pseudo-governments that, that had some say in how the people managed their everyday life. But the Sanhedrin, the Jews could not do things like, they, they could not perform capital punishment. So they could, not, um, they could not stone people, they could not crucify people. Those are things that they couldn't do. The Romans would do that. But the Sanhedrin had some power. One of the things that the Sanhedrin knew, though, is if the, Roman, if the Roman people saw, if the Roman government saw that the Jews were getting out of hand, they would bring in their strong military force. They would bring in Roman soldiers to quell down any type of disturbance. And if this were to happen, the Sanhedrin, who had the power of the people, would be disbanded and the Romans would step in and they would take more control of the power structure in this territory. That's what the Sadducees wanted to hold on to, was this power. So you have these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who work together in this main council called the Sanhedrin. And we see in that last scripture that we read, as the Sanhedrin is coming together, the council says, what are we going to do? This man, Christ, certainly performs miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, everyone will believe him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy our temple and our nation. So now that we know about the Sanhedrin, that kind of helps put that verse in context. They are fearing that if Jesus were to have too much power, if the people were to follow Jesus, then Rome would come in and they would destroy life as they knew it. Now, there's, there's this revolt that the council is, always has in their back of their mind. They don't want this revolt to happen. They don't want the people to revolt. They want to keep everything on the DL, on the down low. They don't really want things to get out of hand because then they lose their power. Here's something else that's really interesting. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in resurrection. 
So everything that they taught was that the, the body would die, but it would never come back. But Jesus just resurrected a man, just brought a man out of the cave, and the public saw this miracle. The Sadducees then could lose the trust that the people have in this leadership group if Christ starts to take followers and people start to realize that Lazarus was just, was just brought up from the dead. See, now the leaders have a problem. We're going to continue in John chapter 11, verse number 45. Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time, said, You don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. That's going to lead us to point number one in your notes this morning. For those of you joining us for the first time in, uh, on, on our website, on parisvalleycc.com, come halfway down the page, you'll see a box that says Sermon Notes. And if you click on that, you can download our sermon notes and you can fill in the, the blanks and have our announcements on it. And I'm going to put a link to our sermon notes right in the Facebook comments right now. So you can click on that and that will take you there and you can print that out and keep along. Point number one in your notes this morning, nations and rulers could not stop the work of Jesus. It was interesting that Caiaphas the high priest, who was the, the leader of this group of, of Sanhedrin, who would have been a leader, this group would have been a leader of the Jewish people. They would all have looked to them, not only for religious leadership, but also for judicial leadership. So they would, they would hold a, a court if there was a theft in town. Um, it would come be... Uh, up to the Jewish council. This high court would be the, the highest court in the land before the Romans had to get involved. It's interesting that Caiaphas says that it is better for one man to die than a whole nation. And what he's thinking about, his point here, is that it's better for Jesus to die than for the whole nation of the Jews at the time to die. Because what he's thinking is that if we kill Jesus then we as Jews can save our power and we can save our people. Little bit did he know how ironic his words were. Because what he said actually happened. It just happened because God placed Jesus in a place. See, wasn't it as Christians we can look back and we can see, wow, it's better that Jesus died for us, one man, than an entire mankind. See, Caiaphas didn't know. He thought that he was just trying to save his power. He had no clue that this was God's plan for Jesus to die to save mankind. I want you to come back with me to John chapter 11, or in verse number 55. John writes this, It was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so that they could go through the 
purification ceremony before Passover began. They kept looking for Jesus, but as they stood around in the temple, they said to each other, well, what do you think? He won't come for the Passover, will he? Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so that they could arrest him. See, we, we see from Matthew that the, the Sanhedrin had one planned on killing Lazarus because they, they have to kill the guy who has been brought up from the dead. They have to take away all the evidence of Jesus actually resurrecting somebody. And they have put a bounty out on the head of Jesus now. Maybe not so much a, a, a bounty, but so much an arrest order. They've said, if you see Jesus, you let us know because we're going to arrest him. And people who are starting to come to Jerusalem, they're coming early. They know this. Point number two in your notes this morning is this. Crowds and traditions cannot stop the work of Jesus. See, three million people is a massive amount of people that are going to be in Jerusalem. There, there's going to be a celebration and before the celebration can start, however, the people need to be ceremonial clean. Ceremonial clean. And so there's people who are going to, to come early, which means that there has to be a sacrifice on your behalf. There were thousands of animals that would have to be sacrificed for the people to be made clean so that they could come into the temple during the Passover time. The Sanhedrin didn't originally want to arrest Jesus during Passover because they would rather do it quietly. Honestly, they would rather do it at a time where maybe it's, it's off of the, the calendar, the holiday calendar, and they can find him on the side of the road and make it quiet. But the people know now that the leaders want to arrest Jesus, and many people have heard the resurrection about Lazarus that, that had happened. So rumors are starting to go around. And of course, the people want to see Jesus. They want to see this man who, who, has been, who actually performed this resurrection. People everywhere are talking. The people who are coming to Jerusalem early, the talk is, hey, did you hear what happened in Bethany just a few days ago? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And some people in Jerusalem, they live close enough. They know Lazarus. They know the family. But now visitors are coming to town. And the rumors are starting to, to work their way around the camps and, and, and around throughout the people. And the crowds are starting to, to whisper. See, even with the crowds who are talking about it, and even about the traditions of, you would, tradition would be, if you were a Jew, you're going to follow what the Sanhedrin are going to say. They're going to set down a law. They're going to set down a rule. They're going to say, if you see this man, we're going to arrest him. Let us know. People know that. So three million people being in town and those who are there early wondering if Jesus is going to be there. This can't even stop Jesus. It can't stop the gospel from being spread. All these people are coming into town. They're getting 
ready for Passover, and now it's time for Jesus to make his grand entrance. Come back with me now. We're going to go to, to John chapter 12, verse number 1. We're only going to be there for a moment. We're going to go back to Matthew. John chapter 1, verse number 1, it says this. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man that he had raised from the dead. Bethany is only a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. We know that Jesus has friends and family there, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. So he comes in with his disciples six days before the Passover celebration begins. And now it's time for him to start moving from Bethany into Jerusalem. We're in Matthew chapter 21 now in verse number one. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead, that's two of the disciples, and he says, go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what, are you, what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. We're going to stop right there for a moment. This idea of riding into town on a donkey, on a colt, and a, and a colt, and other gospels tell us that Jesus is riding on, on the colt of a donkey that has never been ridden before. So it's an animal that typically, that, that isn't broken. This is not the type of animal that you would expect a king to be riding in, into the town on. We think of kings riding into town on a, a big white horse that is dressed in regalia of, of the kingdom. We also think of maybe trumpeters that are coming in with the king. No. The prophecy that people would have understood, the Jews would have known this because they've been looking for this. It comes from the book of Zechariah in, in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse number 9, that says what we just read a moment ago. It says, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding a donkey's colt. This is how the Messiah will come. It's very symbolic. This is not a military king. This is not a man who is coming in, in in armor. He's coming in in humility, riding on a colt. And I want you to watch as the symbolism continues. As Matthew continues with his story, we're in Matthew chapter 21, verse number 9. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him, and they threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest. 
Praise God in highest heaven. We get the, the term we'll see in other translations. Hosanna! Here comes the king! People were taking palm branches and laying it out in front of them. That's where we get the term Palm Sunday. People were laying out palm branches and laying out their garments in front of Jesus as he rides this colt just a couple of miles from Bethany into Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem had gates, big gates. And so if you were inside Jerusalem at this time, you may have heard the commotion. What's going on over there on that side of town? You might look down and you see crowds of people that they've got palm branches. They're taking off their, their, their tunics and they're laying them on the ground and you're watching people taking palm branches and putting them in front of this man on this donkey. Who is that? What, what is going on? See, here's some people who are walking with Jesus, it's not all the people who are in town, but it's a big enough crowd to draw a bigger crowd. Some of the people in Jerusalem that day were in awe of Jesus. This was the Messiah. They recognized what was going on. They recognized the fact that he's riding into town on a colt. They recognized the fact that he had just brought Lazarus out of the grave. This is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. Some people, though, just simply want him to go away. Maybe they've heard rumors before. See, Jesus is about three years into his public ministry at this point. Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem on a donkey and he is going to come out of Jerusalem to go to Golgotha with a cross on his back. He's not going to enter this town again on his own power and by his own will. This Palm Sunday, this moment when this crowd, these people are laying down palm branches in front of them and, and, they're, and they're, they're singing, Hosanna, this is the Son of God. These are some of the same people who on Friday of this next week are going to raise their fist and they're going to say, crucify him. These are some of the same people. Matthew continues this in Verse number 10, actually we're going to go to John chapter 12, verse number 17. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason that so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. See, those in power the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the entirety of the Sanhedrin, they're starting to realize now that this is bigger than they can snuff out. It's bigger than they, than they can make go away quietly. They say, everyone has gone after him. If Jesus continues on his ministry, if Jesus is truly the Messiah. 
everything in their way of life. All their power is gone. All of the all of the finance that comes into the temple, it's all gone. Because Jesus is, is the one that the Jewish nation has been waiting for. If he is the Messiah, then their way of life, their leadership, and their power dissolves because they even have been preaching that they're waiting for him. If you're one of the members of the Sanhedrin, you don't want to give up your power. What would happen if Rome found out that this is the Messiah and, and everything changed, all of, of Jewish culture changed to follow this one man? Rome wouldn't be too happy about that. They would snuff this down. I want you to see that this commotion that Jesus is causing, almost three million people in Jerusalem that are now talking about Jesus when they celebrate Passover, this is where the leaders want him arrested, and they want this to end now. There's Roman guards throughout Jerusalem. They're there to keep the peace. They're going to let the, the Jews have their celebration because it keeps the Jews happy, and as long as they're happy and there's not a lot of commotion, then, the, then, then Rome is happy, and, and they're fine with it. But if there's an uproar, things aren't going to go too well. We see this in Matthew chapter, uh, in, in Matthew, where in verse number 10 it says, The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Uproar. Uproar. That's what the religious leaders of the day wanted to make sure didn't happen. And it was happening. It wasn't going to be a quiet week. There was no way to deal with this situation now quietly. They knew that the Roman guards were in town. And the Roman guards knew that Passover is normally a very peaceful time. Passover is a celebration that goes back into the, the Exodus. You remember back in Exodus when, when the, the, the Jews or the, the Hebrews were leaving Egypt and then they would put uh, blood over their, over their doors and the Spirit would pass over those homes. It's a celebration that the Jews are taking part in that celebrates their people leaving Egypt. This has happened for generations. People celebrate Passover. And they typically celebrate Passover with not a whole lot of commotion, with, without a lot of, of disturbance. This year there is going to be a disturbance. And Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes into town, is the beginning of the disturbance. John chapter 12, come with me, we're in verse number 17. It says, Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That is the reason so many of them went out to meet them, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. And then the Pharisees said to each other, There's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. We mentioned that just a moment ago. I want you to see this. Point number three in your notes is this. 
plots to eliminate the gospel cannot stop the work of Jesus. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, everyone is coming together. They're coming together to stop this. They can't stop it. The Word of God is unstoppable. The mission of Jesus is unstoppable. The government will try to stop Jesus. It cannot stop the Word of God. No crowd can stop the Word of God. The whispers and the rumors cannot stop Jesus. No plots to stop out His ministry have ever been successful, and they will never be successful to stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus. There was a Roman emperor in 303 A.D. by the name of Diocletian. Diocletian became concerned that Christianity had infiltrated the Roman culture and he had decided that he was going to do away with it altogether. And so he decreed as the emperor that all Bibles would be destroyed and all Christians were rounded up and they were killed by the thousands. It was one of the bloodiest times in Christianity. Finally, after a period of time, Diocletian, the Roman emperor at the time, thought that he had extinguished Christianity for good. And in his mind, he had stomped out the gospel of Christ. And, and, and he, he claimed that there was no longer a Christian anywhere. He hired an architect to construct a huge Roman column. And on it, he carved these words. It said, Extincto nomine Christorum, which means extinct is the name of Christian. Diocletian said there was no longer a single Christian on earth. The man who followed Diocletian as the emperor was a man by the name of Constantine. Constantine after he became emperor, he had a vision where he saw the cross of Christ in the sky and he converted to Christianity. Now, whether his conversion was political or, or personal, that's a, a story for another time. But he ordered at that moment all of his soldiers to be baptized and he put wooden crosses on all of their shields and, and he said, in this sign we conquer. And that all happened only 10 years after Diocletian had wiped out in his mind all of Christianity. In modern times, we've seen Joseph Stalin who who came to Russia after Lenin, and he ordered all Bibles to be burned. And, 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 and he said that there will no longer be a single Bible in Russia. Well, many people, even in our generation, in our, our older generations, had seen the time, the crumbling of the, the walls of the Soviet Union. When the walls came down, the Bibles rushed in. Thousands upon thousands of churches sent Bibles from the United States and around the world into the Russian area by the thousands. Dr. Joseph Stalin said there would never be another Bible in Russia. And now there are countless Bibles in Russia. Voltaire is a great French philosopher, and he said, 
He said in 1799, that's, that's very important, I want you to remember that date, 1799, he says, a hundred years from now there will not be a Bible on this earth save an antiquarian curiosity. He's basically saying there's not going to be Bibles that anyone is going to read for faith. They might find one in a thrift store, hold on to it as an antique, just to be curious about what this book used to say. 100 years to the day after Voltaire said this, 100 years to the day, Voltaire's writings were selling on the streets of Paris for 11 cents. That same day, the British government paid the Tsar of Russia one half million dollars for the Codex Zionaticus. It is the oldest and one of the best Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament. It's priceless today. It's on display at a museum in London. So there's a great atheist who says 100 years ago that there will not be a Bible on earth in 100 years. And in 100 years, his writings are selling for 11 cents on the streets. And somebody is paying a half million dollars for the word of God. Why? It's because what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 40, verse number 8, because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word that we just wrote, read told us that this moment on Palm Sunday when Jesus rides in on a donkey and a, and a colt took place to fulfill a prophecy that said this, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. That prophecy was given 500 years before Jesus rode into town. For you and I, we have seen in our lifetime people and governments trying to stop the spread of the gospel. Right now, you and I are living in a time when governments are trying and they will stop the spread of the coronavirus. That will happen. But let me tell you something that will never happen. No government or laboratory or king or municipality will ever stop the spread of the mission of Jesus Christ to spread the gospel and the good news to the entire world. That will never happen. You know why it will never happen? Because you and I have a job to do. It's our job as Christians it's our commission. We have been commissioned to take the gospel to all the corners of the earth. Today, you and I are limited on how many people we can bring into a room and preach to. But we're not limited on who we can speak to. You're not limited on who you can speak to. You're only limited on how you can speak to them. Somebody on your Facebook list needs to know about Jesus. Somebody at the grocery store that you're going to stay six feet away from needs to know about Jesus. That might be the only opportunity that you get to speak to a total stranger this week is when you're buying groceries. You're six feet apart. Can we tell somebody about Jesus from six feet away? Absolutely we can. Right now we're telling people about Jesus 
so far away, you're in your homes. Your job, our job, is to tell others about Jesus. In our lesson today, we saw Jesus come into town on a donkey. And it's going to begin what we call Passion Week. Passion, it's love. It's the love of Jesus and how he's pouring out his passion for us through the cross. Next Sunday, we're going to come and celebrate Easter. It's the day that that the tomb is open. But between now and then, they're going to arrest Jesus. There's going to be trials And they're going to crucify Jesus. They cannot stop it. And they cannot stop his word. And they can't stop you from telling somebody else about Jesus. I pray that today that you've had an opportunity to learn why Palm Sunday is important. And what it means in the grand scheme of the gospel message. And what our responsibility is in the gospel message. Palm Sunday doesn't get enough recognition. And I hope today that that you've learned something about Palm Sunday. I hope that it leads you to tell others about Jesus and bring them back here as we celebrate Easter Sunday, next Sunday. Will you pray with me?